This is a pandemic that hits a country ill-equipped, ill-prepared, that is yet wrestling with literally decades-old racial and ethnic uh, and class disparities and divisions. So it's a form of viralizing justice. In other words, it exacerbates the divisions that we long wrestled with and exposed and revealed divisions that some would much rather ignore. Cornell William Brooks is the former president of the NAACP. He is a civil rights attorney, an ordained minister, and a professor of the practice of public leadership and social justice at the Harvard Kennedy School. In this week's episode, in conversation with Paloma Strelitz and Judd Olenoff, he explores viralized injustice, American health and democracy. This is The Dive. We bring Harvard faculty to you for conversations on the most pressing issues in the news. Hello, I'm Paloma Strelitz and I'm speaking to you from my apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Today I'm here with Judd Olenoff, who's zooming in from Palo Alto, and we're being joined in conversation with Professor Cornell Brooks. Professor Brooks, thank you so much for joining us. It's I wonderful to, to be with you. I want to begin by asking about your kind of extraordinarily broad career. You're a civil rights attorney, ordained minister, Harvard professor, and a former president of the NAACP. Can you explain your journey and what personal experiences or events inspired your career in the civil rights movement? Sure, sure. So I grew up in the uh, low country of South Carolina uh, near um, Charleston. And I knew that because the low country of South Carolina is uh, in the, the area surrounding Charleston where roughly 60% of African-Americans have roots, meaning their forebears were brought through the port uh, at Charleston. Uh, so that was the port of entry to, into the United States uh, and the port of enslavement. And so coming from that part of the country and coming from a family in which there were three generations of ministers before me, uh, all in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, America's oldest African-American denomination, and the denomination that came into being not as a consequence of theology or doctrine, but social justice. So in other words, my church came into being in the late 1700s uh, with the help of one of the signers of the American Declaration of Independence um, because they, my forebears objected to segregation in the church uh, in Philadelphia in 1787. So because I was raised in that kind of environment of social justice and faith, um, I early on aspired to be a civil rights lawyer. I was called into the ministry and really have dedicated uh, the whole of my career to pursuing social justice in terms of litigating cases in court, preaching sermons in the pulpit, uh, and now uh, teaching in the classroom at, at Harvard. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm a kind of oddball professor. I mean, I have, um, um, you know, my degrees, but also have my uh, mugshot of, of having been arrested in various places. Uh, for civil disobedience. So um, I enjoy what I do and I enjoy teaching. I enjoy and enjoy the students who really help me think critically about social justice. And you've described COVID-19 not only as a health pandemic, but as a pandemic on American democracy. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is the pandemic 
afflicts America at a, a particular juncture in, a, in history. So in other words, we are experiencing a pandemic in the midst of racial and ethnic divisions. Uh, we're experiencing a pandemic in which, uh, in a moment of generationally unprecedented activism, much of which has been led by young people across the length and breadth of our democracy. We experience a pandemic where we are in the midst of an era of mass incarceration. So this is not a pandemic that has afflicted a racially homogenized uh, utopia, but a pandemic that has afflicted a country deeply divided by race and ethnicity and also class. So much so that the pandemic is not only affected um, black and brown people who are, who are disproportionately afflicted in the hospitals, in the community, but the pandemic has also afflicted a country where we have a generation of elderly people warehoused in nursing homes insufficiently protected. And so we have elderly people affected, black and brown people affected, certainly poor people affected, and a country in which literally 50% of the counties in our countries, in our country, don't have ICU beds, and so this is not, uh, you know, this is not Germany, where the pandemic hits, people can take off from work, and they get roughly 67% of their pay. Uh, this is a pandemic that hits a country ill-equipped, ill-prepared, that is yet wrestling with literally decades-old racial and ethnic uh, and class disparities and divisions. So it's a form of viralized injustice. In other words, it exacerbates the divisions that we long wrestled with and exposed and revealed divisions that some would much rather ignore. As the midterm elections rapidly approach, there's been a rash of voter identification conflicts in states across the country. Laws across the U.S. are being passed to make it harder not easier to vote. Since the 2016 election, nine states with Republican state legislatures have passed laws restricting the vote. And so on the topic of democracy, COVID raises issues about how to ensure people can vote in the 2020 election. Yes. But can you talk a bit about the state of voting rights in America even pre-COVID? Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you so much for asking about that. So here we have uh, America, which touts itself as a beacon of democracy for the world. And yet, if we look at our constitutional history, what we see is an incomplete uh, effort at iterative inclusion, meaning when the country was founded, white men with property could vote. Uh, over time, we added African Americans, uh, Native Americans, uh, women, young people, as in 18-year-olds, and certainly white men with property. But at every point, those rights have had to be secured, not only in the courts, but in the streets, not only in terms of litigation, but lives lost. So in other words, when we think about Mega Evers, who lost his life for the right to vote, a martyr of the NAACP, Albert Williams, who lost his life for the right to vote, also a martyr of the NAACP, Harry and Harrietta Moore, who had a bomb placed under their house that blew them up, blew them to bits on Christmas Day, which also happened to be their wedding anniversary, because 
They advocated for the right to vote. So this is long, bloody history uh, in terms of advocating for the right to vote. And so we have the 15th Amendment, which grants African-Americans uh, the right to vote, the 26th Amendment granting 18-year-olds the right to vote, the 19th Amendment granting women to vote, and these fights and these struggles in the courts, in the streets, and most recently in your lifetime. Only a few years ago, we had a case called Shelby versus Holder, which gutted, immobilized the Voting Rights Act, which is touted by scholars as the most effective civil rights statute. What has happened? In the wake of Shelby versus Holder, we've seen nothing less than the Machiavellian frenzy of voter disenfranchisement across the length and breadth of our country. In Georgia, the same governor who has prematurely lifted, irresponsibly lifted the stay-at-home orders in his state is the same governor who disenfranchised, purged thousands of votes from voters from the rolls and kept Stacey Abrams from being the first African-American and first African-American woman uh, governor, uh, governor in the country. He uh, has literally led the charge on voter suppression. But that's been the case across the country. So the state of voting in 2020 is one in which not only are black and brown people at risk of having the ballot lost, but also young people. Because as I like to remind people, you seldom see racial voter suppression without seeing young people's voter suppression. Meaning when in Texas only a few years ago, they passed a law which said that a license, as to say, an ID, which allows you to carry a book of English, a book of Shakespeare, a book of engineering, would be insufficient proof to vote. But an ID which allows you to carry a concealed weapon, a rifle, an assault weapon, a handgun, was deemed sufficient proof to vote. That hurt not only black and brown people, but it also hurt young people. Why? Because college IDs and high school IDs would deem insufficient proof to vote. So the virus afflicts a democratic landscape where we have fewer ballot boxes, fewer polling places, where we have weakened laws to protect people's right to vote, where people are being purged from the rolls. You recall in the last presidential election, uh, our president, President Donald J. Trump, won Wisconsin by a margin of victory equal to the number of black votes purged in one city alone, Milwaukee. So the point being here is the virus is afflicting not only hospitals and homes, people and patients, but it afflicts our government, our democracy, our electoral system. Why? Because only a few weeks ago, again in Wisconsin, people are showing up to the polls unsocially distanced to vote, literally risking their lives to cast a ballot. So, and, yeah. And so, to jump in there, are you concerned that um, in November it's still going to be unsafe for people to vote in person? Well, think about this. Why would you have any confidence that you're going to be safe in November when you're not safe now? Meaning, scholars here at Harvard, 
uh, principally Danielle Allen, recently released a report which basically said, in order for us to reopen the economy, we need at least 5 million tests per day. We're not at 5 million tests per day. And they've suggested, not suggested, but they've argued, we need to get up to 20 million tests a day. So we're, if we're not at 5 million tests a day now, we're not at 20 million tests a day, and yet we're reopening the economy. And in Georgia, you can get a haircut, you can get a massage, but you can't get a coronavirus test. So why, again, would we feel comfortable, feel safe, feel secure uh, in November when we can't feel safe or secure today? Right. And are you concerned that people are going to disengage from voting because of the challenges they're currently facing in dealing with COVID? Absolutely. So where we are now at, uh, far in excess of 60,000 deaths, a million um, cases in, in a city like Detroit, where you have one out of every 10 residents having the virus. What happens if the virus comes back, and we know it will, as we enter the fall. So I'm concerned that people are going to make a, be faced with a Faustian choice. Honor my commitment as a, as a citizen to vote, or honor my responsibility to my family to keep myself and my loved ones safe. This is not a choice that any American or any human being should make. Yes, I mean, you, that's such a uh, sort of stark image of a Faustian pact. Um, and it's kind of the first time I've heard that image, but it's very resonant. Ultimately, it's inequity that's the pre-existing condition. It's the inequality that's a pre-existing condition. And you can't just go to someone and tell them, hey, you should have had healthcare this whole time when you're working you know, when you're working an hourly job and your employer doesn't give it to you. You know, a lot of these pre-existing conditions have to do with uh, the inability to access quality health care. Professor, moving to COVID's disproportionate impact on different communities, mm -hmm. um, you retweeted the other day that inequality is a pre-existing condition. Sure. And that struck me. Can you explain what that means? So, Pre-existing conditions are those conditions which are long-standing in a person's life. They're often used to disqualify them for coverage uh, in terms of insurance companies. So if you have some uh, long-standing condition that has been deemed to be pre-existing, you can be disqualified for coverage. Inequality is a long-standing pre-existing condition in this country. So in other words, when people arrive at the ICU with COVID-19, they arrive coming from communities in which um, health risks are segregated, meaning that ch children who have asthma tend to live in certain neighborhoods. People suffering from hypertension tend to live in certain neighborhoods. People suffering from cardiovascular disease tend to live in certain neighborhoods. People who find it hard to see a doctor when there's not a pandemic, tend to live in certain neighborhoods. And so what I'm saying to you is the inequality, the inequities in our country are pre-existing conditions which literally disqualify people, if not formally, then certain, certainly practically in terms of the best healthcare in this country. And you see it 
in terms of the hospitalizations of African-Americans, high hospitalizations, and the high fatalities, right? So in other words, it's not merely that you can say, well, more people of color, particularly more African-Americans, die as a consequence of comorbidities, which I call the, the chronic maladies of the poor. It's also that they suffer at the hands of a healthcare system that doesn't respond to them. You mentioned um, the I think you you said the chronic maladies of the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, could you explain what some of those are and what um, what can what ongoing conditions cause those maladies? Sure, sure. So, with the coronavirus, the term comorbidities, those illnesses and conditions which correlate with morbidity or death from, the, from COVID-19. You know, these are drivers. So having uh, asthma, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, put people in a position where they're less likely to survive being um, hit by the virus, being infected by the virus. These comorbidities correlate with what I call the chronic maladies of the poor, meaning these are the illnesses that poor people often have. Um, Asthma, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. And these illnesses don't come about merely because people just happen to be poor, but obesity is a consequence of perhaps food choices in some instances, but in many instances, food deserts. Uh, Asthma may be uh, the result of some, um, uh, you know, some inherited condition maybe. Uh, I'm not too certain about about that, but what I do know is that people who live in communities uh, where there is air pollution are much more likely to have it. Cardiovascular disease may be affected by heredity, but it is also driven by the conditions uh, in which people live. Yeah, and reviewing some of the, um, the numbers, the, the disproportionate yep. impact is really staggering. I think the CDC mm-hmm. said a couple of weeks ago that mm-hmm. a third of those hospitalized with COVID were African-American, but African-Americans represent like 13 or so percent mm-hmm. of the overall population. That's right. And in certain areas, I, I was reading, um, like in certain areas of Chicago, African-Americans comprise something like 70% of COVID deaths, but are only a third of, and and they're, you know, Milwaukee, cases in Louisiana, where it's similarly just amazingly disproportionate. Um, I'm curious, what is also the the element here of um, disproportionate representation among essential workers? You know, Mm -hmm. it sounds like you're explaining certain populations um, might be exposed more to certain... um, uh, maladies or conditions. What about the element of certain right. people don't have the ability to stay home? That's right. So uh, it, it, you're raising a good point that the CDC has lifted up, and I'd like to ex- uh, express it this way. In many instances, African Americans are on the front lines, the front lines in terms of vocation, serving as nurses, healthcare workers, first responders. 
Um, but they are also categorically on the front lines of risk, not only in terms of vocation, not only in terms of geography coming from communities uh, that where hospitals serve them less and serve them less well, um, but also on the front lines of risk in terms of density, meaning to the extent that African-Americans uh, often live in cities, they're exposed more to the extent that African-Americans and other people of color uh, are in vocations where they don't have the luxury of working at home. So the risk is vocational, the risk is geographic, the risk is uh, physical as in um, uh, health uh, disparities, uh, and this is across the board. But you cannot take comfort that you won't be affected because the virus is affecting urban America, rural America, red state America, blue state America. And as um, one noted professor at the law school, um, oh, um, her name will come to me, she just she talked about African Americans as canaries in the coal mine. When the when when the when the canaries' life is in peril, the miners are next. Let's be very clear about this. The reason why Harvard looks like a ghost town. Is because we understand the threat of this virus. Was true for Harvard and Cambridge and Atlanta and Charleston and San Francisco and New York. It's true for every village, every hamlet in the country, and it's true with respect to every hue and heritage. Any person from any walk of life can be afflicted by this virus. Yeah. And, and what you said, I think, also ties into the question of, you know, certain states and localities are already talking about the possibility of opening back up. Mm -hmm. And there's this tension between certain states wanting to generate economic activity again, but it could come at the cost of, of lives. Um, what do you think is the right way broadly to handle that question of, of reopening, um, but protecting people as the number one priority? This 50-state response to the global pandemic has meant that literally we had no protocols. There are no national protocols for how you, how you reopen. Now, the governor can't, I mean, the president can't impose on governors uh, a one-size-fit-all, but he could create a standard. How do we handle retail establishments? Um, how do we sequence openings? What should the threshold be for testing for you to reopen your economy? Why is it that we literally are trying to fight a war, literally, with uh, 50 captains and not a general in sight? Can you imagine World War II being fought uh, by Eisenhower or Roosevelt with governors instead of a president? We've described the pandemic as a war, but World War II was not fought with 50 governors. It was led by a commander in chief. And what we have right now is essentially a, a, a um, corporate captain in chief who's outsourcing the leadership. And I'm saying this not as a partisan critique, but pointing out the need, particularly at, you know, being at the Kennedy School, teaching in the, with the Center for Public Leadership, pointing out the need for a coherence of leadership, right? In other words, you have to be, be able to articulate what is the standard, what is the goal? How are we trying to move the country forward? As opposed to simply 
uh, abdicating responsibility, outsourcing responsibility, and laying blame elsewhere. This has consequences, both in terms of the economy and certainly in terms of healthcare, meaning we don't have protocols with respect to testing, we don't have protocols with, with respect to reopening, and, and it's affecting how we reopen and how safely and justly we reopen. As a nation, we should be profoundly embarrassed that we have more people in jail than any other country on earth. We spend $80 billion a year locking up 2.2 million people, disproportionately African-American, Latino, and Native Americans. Uh, for a start, what I would propose is when we have unemployment rates of minority kids of 40 or 50 percent, that maybe it makes more sense to invest in jobs and education for those kids rather than jails and incarceration. So you've had a long history advocating for criminal justice reform in the US. For those less familiar with the issue, can you frame the history in the current situation? Sure, sure. So when we look, look at the very founding of the United States, um, the 13th Amendment abolished, abolished slavery with the exception of punishment for crime. And as Michelle Alexander and any number of scholars have lifted up, um, our system of retributive justice is one in which there have been racialized and uh, classized outcomes for generations on end. Meaning, in 2020, we have 2.3 million Americans behind bars. We have 70 plus million Americans with criminal records. We have a million fathers behind bars. If you are an African-American man without a high school diploma, it is highly likely that you will spend part of your life in prison. That's not a consequence of greater law-breaking or less law-abiding behavior in black and brown communities. What you find is when you control for class, people are pretty much the same. When you look at drug use and drug dealing, it's about the same across ethnic groups. But when it comes to the prosecution, the incarceration of people is extraordinarily racialized. So in terms of criminal justice reform, whether it be bail reform, where we literally have debtors prisons across our country, where people who've not been convicted of a crime are literally cooling their heels behind bars with their liberty on hold because they can't come up with bail. Or where we have in this country, literally, not merely adults, but most children who are in the juvenile justice system, they're there uncharged uh, and or unadjudicated as an unconvicted. And where we have literally millions of children whose parents are behind bars. So that's the state of play, and that's the state of the country when the coronavirus hit. And so what do you think are the unique dangers facing populations in US prisons during this pandemic? So one of the things that the C among the many things that CDC advises is that we all wash our hands um, across the day that we all remain socially distant from those not in our um, household, that we um, 
uh, take care of ourselves and our loved ones as best we can. America's prisons are, if you will, like states among states. If America has been described as a carceral state, we have literally thousands of correctional facilities which are states among the 48 contiguous states, and they are contagious. So in other words, in our prisons, soap is often contraband. Alcohol and hand sanitizer is contraband. People can't be socially distanced in a place that is overcrowded. And so where we have adults crammed into unsafe, unsanitary facilities, those prisons are petri dishes for the, for the COVID-19 virus. Not only that, not only are our adults at risk, but our children in a, correction, a juvenile correctional facility uh, in my home state of Virginia. Um, over half of the children were infected with the virus. So we're seeing across the country two places that are petri dishes for the virus, where we put our seniors and where we, uh, we put those accused of crime or convicted of crime. And in either case, I would argue our seniors don't deserve the death penalty and people who have been uh, relegated to a prison, a juvenile facility, or a detention facility should not be subject to the death penalty. I and mean, it's, I was going to say it's just such a bleak picture, but are you aware of any models of progressive or positive management which demonstrate humane treatment of prison populations during the pandemic? Yes, there are um, places like in California where you have jurisdictions that are limiting the number of people coming in. Meaning if you're convicted of a minor offense, we're not, uh, they are not sending people into prisons and into jails. What they're trying to do is stem the tide on the front end. You also have mayors, I should say certainly uh, governors, using compassionate release meaning releasing people who don't pose a threat to others um, so that they might not be infected and they, they may not infect others. Uh, and that's happening in, in various jurisdictions. The challenge here is that we have so many people who should not be in prison at all, right? So in other words, we don't need to be in a position of trying to reverse engineer a potential death penalty. Right? Like, why are we in the business right, of having children? And let me give you a concrete example of this. In, in the last 10 years, we have reduced the number of children in the juvenile corrections system by over half in 10 years with no adverse consequences in terms of public safety. And so the question I pose is what we did for the children, we can certainly do for adults. And so getting beyond COVID, what do you think is the most important thing that legislators can do for criminal justice reform in the US in 2020? Um, several things. Um, push forward in terms of bail reform. Rather, in other words, keeping people out of jails who will likely end up in prison, number one. Number two, 
we have to change our sentencing laws so that we are not sending people to prison who should not be there. Number three, we have to reassess our assessment of violent crime, meaning there are people who've been convicted of violent crime, as it is variously described, who could be released. Here's what I mean. There was a study called the Redemption Study. It essentially proved this. If a person goes a certain period of time without committing crime, they're no more likely to commit crime than anyone else. So in other words, if a person committed a simple assault and hasn't engaged in any other violent activity in five years, in seven years, in 10 years, they're not likely to be a threat to society. We have to think more carefully about putting people back on the street who deserve to be there. I think that point about preventative care, both in the healthcare, but also in the criminal justice system is really striking. I'm gonna pass on to Jadta for the last uh, couple of questions. Sure. You're a lot of things. You're a professor, a lawyer, a civil rights activist, and a minister. Um, looking back, um, you did your undergraduate work at Jackson State and went to law school at Yale. Can you talk about the process of deciding to become a minister when mm -hmm. you decided that, what your thought process was, and who your inspirations were on that path? So not unlike many of the students who come to the Kennedy School, um, you know, my career path has not uh, been about um, vocational calculation, certainly in terms of becoming a minister. The way I became a minister was I, I, I went to hear a speech as an undergraduate at Jackson State University. And the speaker asked three questions from the podium. First question he asked was, how many of you believe in God? Now, uh, I went to school in the Bible Belt in Mississippi, the Deep South. So whether people believe in God or not, they all claim to believe in God, right? So he asked the question and everyone raised their hand. Everyone said they believe in God. Then he asked, how many of you read the Bible from cover to cover? No one. Second question he asked was, he asked, um, how many of you believe that America is generally a good country? Back then, everyone raised their hand and said, we believe America is a good country. Then he asked the question, how many of you read the Constitution in its entirety? And in a room of 300 students, no one raised their hand. Last question he asked, how many of you believe that Dr. Martin Luther King was a great man? Everyone raised their hand. Then he asked, how many of you have read all of his books? No one. So I left the room profoundly embarrassed by my own ignorance and deeply determined to rectify it. So I read, I committed myself to reading the Bible in its entirety, reading the Constitution in its entirety, and reading all of the books of Dr. King. And that put me on a journey of both understanding the need for civil rights lawyers, but it also awakened within me um, a calling to serve God and God's children. Because I read Dr. King's books, which led me to the works of Walter Rauschenbusch, the theologian, uh, to the works of Paul Tillich. It led me to the works of, of ultimately, the, the liberation theologians. And so I began to read all of these social ethics, ethicists and moral philosophers, and it literally 
spoke to my heart. And that intellectual journey, coupled with my um, uh, upbringing in the church and being a fourth generation minister, I should say being, uh, having three generations of ministers before me, that literally put me on a path such that I saw the law as a tool of ministry and an expression of my call. You know, whether you are at the Kennedy School, whether you're a beautician, a firefighter, uh, a nurse, doctor, teacher, people want to have some kind of impact. You don't want to lay down at the end of your life and think that you spent 40, 50, 60, 70 years um, having consumed oxygen and not having affected uh, the planet. So that's why we're here. Last question, Professor. Um, coming back to 2020. So we're in an election year. I'm curious um, as to your thoughts on the state of the Democratic Party. There's obviously a lot of debate within the party among different elements on a variety of issues. Uh, how do you assess the state of the party on civil rights issues? And are there certain issues where you'd like to see the party, either you think they're, they're in the right place or you think the party could, could uh, become more progressive? Sure, sure. So I, I think, nominally speaking, the, the Democratic Party is strong on civil rights as a consequence of the primacy and the importance of the Black vote, uh, the Latino vote, and the youth vote. Um, I, th I think that those constituencies uh, and the need for their votes means that civil rights issues have to be uh, a part of the democratic platform and people have to say that they're important. That being said, you have to show up at the grassroots. You know, no, no partisan commentary here, but I, I will simply note this. Um, I have not endorsed anyone. I'm not endorsing anyone. But when you see certain candidates show up for demonstrations, protests, when workers are um, on a strike, people remember that, particularly young people. When you see candidates in a party demonstrating their commitment in a consistent way, people remember that. And so the issue is not, um, how does Biden or Trump poll with respect to women? It's also how do the candidates show up for women? Do women trust them so that it's not merely what are your favorables, but what is the enthusiasm factor? <clears throat> because at the end of the day, who's going to vote in a pandemic? The people who are enthusiastic about their candidate, not merely angry about the other candidate. Professor Cornell Brooks, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate oh, thank it. Thank you. Thank you. And congratulations for this podcast. Thanks for joining us on The Dive. This episode was produced by Zoya Soroy, Paloma Strelitz, and Jad Alanoff. If you enjoyed this discussion, please share it on social media. Also, we welcome any feedback you might have, so just write to us at ideas at the dive dot media.